Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Wiggle Room. Being that it's the city's most vibrant burlesque venue, a night at Wiggle Room feels like a trip back in time to Montreal's rebellious youth. Right across from Schwartz's, and other Montreal landmarks, the Wiggle Room promises to entertain on the coldest winter night and the longest summer evening alike. Finally, we receive support from Good Mix, a hearty breakfast mix that really, really cares about your gut health. It keeps you full and makes your body happy. What more could you want in a meal to start your day? You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, we will be talking to Carrie Charlton. Is that the proper way to pronounce it? Correct. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. Carrie Charlton. So so tell us about yourself. Well... Uh, You are... You've done... You've worn many hats. You've done many things, but you're mainly in information security guys so uh tell us what's what okay well thanks very much for for having me here john um yeah so uh security seems to be in the headlines an awful lot these days with things that are going on in the world um and i don't see it changing anytime soon um as we put more of our lives into computers um they become more appealing as targets and the consequences become higher when when it goes south um I suppose to a certain extent I foresaw this, which is why I, I got into it when I did. Um, back when I, I started getting involved in security, i just graduated from doing normal, standard, common computing. Um, and I saw security as something where it was going to become more and more important. Um, and I was working for a company at the time that did uh, record systems. They made, if you, you work in a university, you have... Um, student records, so your students' names, addresses, telephone numbers, all that kind of stuff. Sure, yeah. We made, um, in, in the company I was in, uh, sort of the dominant one in the UK for, for records for universities and sixth form colleges. Um, the company had basically stitched up the schools market here. I think they had something like 93% full schools with their software. It was like the de facto student record system, and they were trying to do this with universities. Um and as you can imagine, as a sort of source of sensitive information, it was, you know, it wasn't particularly appealing as a target, but it was particularly sensitive if it got out. So you had information about kids, religion, sexuality, this child is having problems at home kind of thing. Um, and so I was sort of, I suppose, trying to push internally and make them realise this is really important, you need to protect this stuff. Um, and there was some new legislation at the time 
Um, you might have heard about GDPR, which is the current European legislation that's causing North America and Canada some fun challenges on the tech. No, tell, tell me all about it. No. Okay. So GDPR is like, um, it's not. I, I avoid the news for the most part. Uh, okay. G- GDPR so. <laughs> is the uh, general data protection regulation. So it's a big, uh, come out of the European Union, a uh, big um, basically privacy legislation that all, all tech companies and all companies have to abide by. Um, and prior to that, we had lots of different, within Europe, different countries had their own implementation of a, a common uh, directive. Um, so there was already legislation, and I was trying to push them to be ahead of the curve. And it was quite fun because um, it was a classic kind of, I, I was working full-time, I was studying, and I wanted to do my thesis on, on this thing in my day job because I was lazy and I wanted to uh, get paid on company time to work on my thesis. And Sure. Um, and they were kind of like, yeah, you know, it's good, but, you know, we'd rather have you doing fee-earning stuff for the customers. Um, and it was quite funny because I've been sort of arguing with my boss for a while about wanting to do it. And it was the classic, oh, I, I agree with it, but the higher-ups don't. And then one morning I came in on Monday and uh, he went, oh, I, th- I think we'll get the go-ahead for your project now. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like why? What's changed since, you know, Friday afternoon? Because this is now the hottest thing ever. Yeah, yeah suddenly <laughs> we're interested. <laughs> um <laughs> And it, it, it turned out on the Friday there'd been a, like a customer focus group where they had all so eighty ninety percent of the customer base all together in a big <laughs> arena. Um, I, I I just I love this image. It's like the guy in the back room who's like, "I've got this thing. It's called Velcro," and <laughs> they're ignoring him. And all of a sudden they're like, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'd like to hear more about that Velcro thing. So suddenly Carrie's idea is like popular. Yeah. And it, yeah. it was it was very much like that. And what had got, got on was um, in. I'll start with the end result and work backwards to the events of the end. But what happened sure. in, in the middle of uh, the customers being all congregated together? Someone literally stood up in the middle of a salesman's pitch, showing some new product feature, pointed at the screen that was kind of projected behind him, and went, "That's my data." And oh my was, god. It was like a live oh demonstration <laughs> had occurred using a customer's real data without their agreement or prior knowledge, and that customer happened to be in the crowd. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you right away were like, this is going to... Well, you know, I mean, as soon as we went to an online system, um, I would say, like, at the college where I teach, within two years of going to an online system... I had a situation where, you know, because I I have a very idiosyncratic old school way of like keeping my grades. And I would, you know, if when I would enter them into the system, I would immediately print them out and keep like a printout on the side. I don't do that anymore. Now what I do is like after I've entered them all, I take a picture with my phone uh-huh. of the screen and then, um, and so when I'm actually like going back before I enter the final grades, I check the pictures to make sure they line up with what's in the database. Uh, um, sure and if, and if they don't line up, you know, I will say something. Uh, if they do line up, I delete the photo and that's the end of it. 
So I'm not I'm not wasting paper anymore. But back in the day, when they when we first went digital, I would print it out. Yeah. And so I got to, um, you know, I I have like a manageable amount of students per semester. It's about uh, I, I vary between about 160 to 200 students per semester. Usually somewhere, usually more like about 170, and that's like a number where. Uh, the human brain can remember that many names and faces. Uh, we're programmed to be able to remember that many. Uh, once we get into like higher amounts, there's only a small percentage of people that can do that. But it's like anyway, the nor- village mentality where you exactly, exactly. Yeah. So if if I saw like a student that I know. That, you know, this guy, Carrie, yeah, whatever. He's such a loser, man. <laughs> he's like, he, he's a slacker. He shows up stoned to my class all the time. He does the reading once in a while. He's smart when he does it, but he's mostly a slacker. So if I see that suddenly his grade, you know, two years after we went digital, I went into the system and I saw that three grades had been changed. They had been changed. And so a student had hacked into the system and had gone around and like changed grades. And I went uh, and I I told the, the administration about this and um, they they kind of freaked out. And, you know, I'm not even sure what the true story is, but apparently they've they fired the like the I.T. person. Uh, at the, the college and they got somebody else and they which was stupid because actually it was the system that we had outsourced to that had the problem <laughs> but whatever um yeah so i, I mean I, I remember seeing like very early on and then we had some scandals here in canada like the probably the biggest one was um our second biggest bank cibc uh, which is which is not only the second biggest bank in Canada, but because of a number of strange things about the Canadian banking system, the Canadian banks, although we're not you know the biggest country in the world, the Canadian banks are are actually uh, some of the biggest banks on planet Earth uh, because of we have a high degree of concentration of the banking system and everything. Anyway, um, CIBC, which is one of the biggest banks in the world, second biggest bank in Canada had uh, lost the data of their customers and was all out, like, and was being sold. Do you mean um, lost in the sense of disclosed to people who shouldn't have it or lost as in... Yeah, it was disclosed. It was... No, they, they, no, 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 we're, no, we're not talking Fight Club here. <laughs> where they actually, like, no, 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 we're not talking Fight Club where they, like, get rid of all the records. That would have been awesome. Yeah, yeah, that would have been awesome. Yeah, get rid of all my student loans, all my, yeah, credit card debt. That would have been wonderful. No, this was, uh, this was, they basically just lost uh, customer data and, People outside of CIBC that should not have had access to it had all this personal data and it went out and it was a really big scandal. So, yeah, I mean, this is this has been a thing that I've um, I've experienced personally in a number of different institutions and situations. Uh, so what do you think? Is, is this just going to get worse? Yeah, 
I think if I, <laughs> I appreciate this as a podcast, and so uh, you can see me, but the listeners can't see my hands. But if yeah. I draw like a graph with my hands, it goes, it gets worse. And then something so bad happens that finally people will start doing it properly and then it will get a lot better. Um, but how can it get better if the stuff is already all out there? So you, you said about losing data um, and there's, there's three kind of core concepts in information security that, uh, you know, it's a really useful framework to think about anything. Um, and it's called, confusingly, the CIA triad. And it has nothing to do with the Central Intelligence Agency. It has nothing <laughs> to do with Chinese mafia either. It's, um, it's a triangle, and the three bits are C stands for confidentiality, I stands for integrity, and A is availability. And confidentiality means secrets about me aren't disclosed to you. Integrity means information about me is kept accurate. So... Your example of people changing students' grades, that's a case of integrity. It was a B, now it's an A, or it was a C, now it's yeah. A. Yeah. Um, and availability means it's there and it's online. So your Fight Club example of, I've taken it offline, no, no one is using it. I may <laughs> the not buildings are the going down, is, yeah, yeah. But it's gone. Um, that's availability. Um, and, yeah, once it's... You, to answer your question, once it's gone, once the confidentiality has been, then yeah, it's pretty much game over. Um, your your best bets really are hope that the breach is so big in terms of scale that there are other people who are more interesting than you, um, whose information has been disclosed, and that they go after those instead. Or think of these as like sales leads for the bad guys. If they've got 10 million credit cards that they've just stolen, they're not going to get a chance to go around and use them all. So pray that the bank gets on it, cancels the cards and reissues them. And maybe the bad guys get through 10,000 before the bank jump on it. And it's like, well, if you're one of these 10,000 unlucky guys, but if you're one of these. Um, but um, yeah, once it's gone out, it's kind of a case of um, hopefully it's not too damning. Um, or hopefully it's some information that's got a shelf life. So if it's been stolen, but it was something you did when you're a teenager, you may be like, well, I don't really care. It's 20 years ago. But if it was something that happened yesterday and it still might have materiality. So, you know, the example I gave earlier about uh, a previous employer and having a breach, I wouldn't have said that the day after it happened, it would be political hot potatoes 15 years ago now. So, you know, who cares? Um, yeah. Yeah. So the, there are some where uh, the nature of the disclosure is bad in and of itself. So you might've heard about the American one, um, Ashley Madison, which was basically like, uh, Oh yes. <laughs> a, a dating agency for people who, for uh, married people. Yeah. Yeah. One of affairs. Yeah. That, that was one yeah. where like, so there, if you're in a given relationship, I know, I know, like a dozen people that got busted because of that. But you think if you're like, now in a new relationship, historically that data doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in that window of time, it's really sensitive. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, they, that was pretty crazy. Like people, uh, people were on there, you know that, and and people that you would think. Are oh yeah you know he's such a you know 
like relationship guy and like yeah and she's so hardcore committed like they were on there <laughs> but you know what one, one thing i've always wondered about you know comparing i spend a fair amount of time in the united states i've got a lot of family and friends there and my wife is american and um it, it down in the states it seems like i don't know what the actual numbers are but i know for for basically middle to upper class people who have like some money, uh, it it seems like one in three people that I know in the states have experienced identity theft, and have had like it, it seems so unbelievably common that they've had some kind of. Whereas here in Canada, it's very rare. It's really, really, really rare. Like I've had my my credit card and you know information stolen uh, I you know a couple times I don't know how many times like a couple times uh, it's caught so unbelievably fast like yeah, it it's is. caught it's caught like like no joke it's caught within four hours like yeah. they just they immediately you know whatever it is their algorithms immediately pick up this doesn't look like something we know what John Faithful Hamer would spend his money on. We know where he would go. This is out of pattern. This yeah. isn't even drunk. This is the, this isn't even drunk John. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he, he wouldn't go to that strip. Yeah, he would yeah, he yeah, he wouldn't go to that strip club. <laughs> like that would like like it was it was just uh they immediately catch it. So like what is going on there? The United States, why are they, why are Americans so much more vulnerable than Canadians? I mean, you, you would know about this. Like, so, so general identity theft, I'm not sure what the, the parameters would be, um, but certainly in the credit card space, um, there are a number of things that made the Americans more, um, more vulnerable. Just out of interest, do you guys in Canada, do you have chip and pin? So when you use your credit or debit card, you have to type your pin number in like you yep, get cash out? Yep, both. Both. And have you gone to yeah. contactless yet? Uh, so we just like wave your card over it wirelessly? Yes, yeah. Um, but so the thing is, is with, but the thing is with the, with the just waving it, uh, it only works, and I, I've noticed this, it only works if you go to a place you always go to, and if you're spending an amount that is not a big deal. Yeah. So they, they if you go to a place, if you go to a place that you've never gone to, um, it'll immediately reject it and it'll say, enter the pin and enter the card. Like, but, uh, but if you go to a place, if it's a place, you know, the, the neighborhood pub, you go there all the time, yeah. the neighborhood grocery store, you go there all the time. Uh, all of your purchases are between, you know, X and Y, and this is a purchase that is within X and Y, uh, it's just passed. Yeah, so that, um, that what you just... If you try and pass four of them in a row, you know, the the second or third one is not going to go. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the thing you describe is, is fairly simple in terms of what's going on in the bank. So, um even if they've got multiple checkouts in a supermarket, if it's a supermarket you shop at, they'll be registered against what's known as a merchant ID. So all the, as far as the bank is concerned, all those multiple uh, chip and bin devices will go through one entity. 
and you can tie back transactions to those. So one of the really crude checks is, has this card ever been used against this mid, this mid ID before? And if it has, it's not guaranteed, but from a, a scoring perspective, it's probably a safe thing. Um, and so I don't, I don't like scoring in a, in a, in a Bayesian sense or. Yeah, it, it is. It does use sort of Bayesian uh, probability. Um, we like, I won't, on a public podcast, give away too many of the algorithms that specific banks use. But one of the general premises is you have scoring and there are various things about a transaction and certain things reduce the score and certain things increase the score. Um, and that you have shopped there before and it's not very far away from where you last used your card are things that make it more likely that it's it's legitimate. So if it's the coffee shop around the corner that you always go to, it's, even with no other parameters, it's probably kosher. Whereas if it's suddenly a little coffee shop in Kabul and two hours ago <laughs> you were over in downtown Toronto, it's probably yeah. not legit. And, so, and Kuala Lumpur buying like, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. credit card uh, payments for that reason, because they use quite frequently and because we can do analytics and see what normal looks like, um, where someone's actually got hold of your card details and is using it nefariously is, is fairly easy to spot. Um, I did in my uh, ooh, job before last now, uh, I did specialise in card payment security. So I used to do a lot of work with banks um, and particularly breach investigations. So the company I worked for, uh, shout out to the Phagenics guys and gals, um, is really sort of one of the top tier um, forensics and remediation firms. So when these are a MasterCard of a big credit card breach, they're the people they call in to, to both do the... Um, investigation of what happened um and they try and understand that to i suppose evolve the standard and um basically update the best practice according to what the bad guys are doing mm -hmm. and they also have like okay you got hacked or you lost this data what can you do differently to fix it and sometimes people were doing everything they should have and other times you go in and you look and you're like wow no wonder these guys got got turned over um <laughs> you know, so, sometimes you think how did they last this long without it <laughs> yeah you were like a sitting duck forever right like yeah yeah well it's it you know there was a I'm, I'm forgetting what it is it's one of the podcasts that my wife listens to uh we were listening to it the other day and like uh he was talking about how he had had his identity stolen this is an american guy and um, somebody took out, like, all of these, like, loans, like, payday loans, like, yeah. huge, huge, huge amounts of loans. And uh, and then he got, like, uh, he got this, like, they suddenly shut down his credit. He it was messing with all these things about his life. And he was just talking about, like, first of all, like, it's amazing that it's this easy for somebody to do this. And then also, like, how difficult it was to undo it. Like, really, really, really difficult to undo it. Like, uh, when he had done the podcast, I wish I could remember the name of it, but, like, when he had done the podcast, it still uh, had not been totally undone. 
And he said, you know, I was always very judgmental of people who were in this situation. And I thought, well, you're just not doing your due diligence. But uh, so I guess I'm sort of because I've asked my, my brother lives in Sydney and I've asked in Australia and I've asked him. He said in Australia also it's uh, it's very rare. And then I have a sister who lives in New Zealand. Uh, apparently it's very rare there. I'm just wondering, why is it in the United States they seem sort of uniquely vulnerable to these kinds of security threats? So um, on the on the credit card front, um, their failure to adopt chip and pin standard is a big one because, frankly, those squiggles on... Um, like signatures, <laughs> are, are terrible. It's um, ridiculous. Yeah, actually, training someone how to, um, for example, spot that a face on an ID is the real person in front of you. It sounds insane, but is actually quite a skill. If you see properly <clears throat> military personnel doing it, they like they hold the passport up to the side of your head and they look at your face for a good couple of seconds and they look at the picture. And then they look back, and then they look back again. And if people just glance at your passport, it's like, unless they... Well, I'm looking at you right now, and, like, with glasses, and, you know, and and mine's a hat, like, we could pass for each other. Yeah, easily. (laughs) Yeah, like, easily. Just like, I mean, I know all white people, white middle-aged guys look the same. Yeah. But, like, (laughs) but we could pass, we could pass for the, for, easily. Easily, you could like pass on my ID. Yeah, the the early yeah. um, facial recognition ones. It was kind of pre what they use in airports now. The early ones. There was a really famous one, and it was um, it was a photograph of Osama bin Laden and some female model. And, <laughs> <laughs> and they managed to trick the algorithm. Iman, I'm sure they were. Close I'm sure it was. Iman, it was yeah. Like, once you knew they'd fallen for it, you looked at it and you're like. Oh wow! And obviously they looked very, very different. <laughs> and it's got like the shape, shape of her face and the way it tapered <laughs> looked kind of similar. And the brow, yeah. the hairline was kind of a similar height. And you could yeah. see how the computer would mess this up. But people yeah. aren't much better, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you sort of flip no, no, they're not. And it's your friend's fake ID. Yeah. No, it's very, very. So, so it's the chip. That's that's the a lot of the reason is the chip thing. Yeah. Um, okay. One of the things is that um, the Americans, in general, compared to most of the world, uh, um, are quite appealing. So there's a there's a whole kind of black market for stolen identities and stolen card informations um, out there. And sometimes people get upset when you talk about it, as though it's just it's free market economics, and it's just it's easiest to think about it as a legitimate business um, enterprise because it will help yeah. you visualize what these guys are doing. Um, I mean, they go to the level that they've got SLAs with customers and they offer support and training and things like this. So it's, really <laughs> quite, it's honestly, it's really quite sophisticated. But um, yeah. What, what well, if you, books? have you read that book, uh, Dawn of the data wars? No. Who's that by? It's, um, Oh, who is it? It just it came out in January. I'm blanking on the name of the guy. Uh, it's called. It's sort of uh, Dawn Dawn of the Data Wars. Sorry, I'm just and, or thing. no or Dawn of the Code Wars. Ah, Dawn of the Code Wars. Maybe I'm like, check it check it up. Okay. But anyway, uh, it just came out in January, and it's it's by a guy who, like you, he got into 
sort of uh, data security and when it was like, you know, it was like the guy in the back who's doing Velcro. It was like the random thing that nobody's doing. And he was new into the FBI and he got no respect. And he was just like doing this shitty thing that everybody thought was dumb. And he was like a geek who played Pac-Man like us when he was a kid, you know, and everything. And suddenly, like you, um, the people, the the top brass came to him and were like, um, this shit looks important now. <laughs> like, And so suddenly he got like a lot of respect and he was brought out. Anyway, so he got all this like amazing amount of like clearance to be able to talk about uh, you know, he, he, on some things like you, he sort of says, well, I can't be specific about this, but he talks about the development of of the Internet and he talks about like when all of these problems became became kind of obvious. But uh, it, it's a it's a, re it's a really, really good book. And it's he kind of he lays out like what all of the issues are. And he says um, that. uh I mean, he doesn't just talk about Russian meddling and the like. He actually says the really big problem is China. Um, actually, uh, China's got, but he, but he does sort of go into the the details, which you're talking about. How there are these these outfits in St. Petersburg and in Beijing where they've got trainers, <laughs> they've got they've got like cust they've got support. They've got you can tell when they all go on vacation <laughs> because suddenly activity drops. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell you can tell when they all go on lunch break. <laughs> like, it's just unbelievable. Like it's very clear. One of my favorites yeah. was like an advert if you wanted to get into being one of the bad guys, and as well as offering like, you know, you can buy these tools and you can buy this training. They actually had like a mentoring program where it's like <laughs> We can buddy you as part of your fee for like two months. You'll have this experienced fraudster who you can call on when you get stuck. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because like the people I know here in Montreal who are uh, the most kind of knowledgeable system admins, the people who are like, you know, making like making like high six figures running WordPress and other things like that. They all taught themselves. They did not actually, they, in university, they did things like, uh, like music or philosophy or art history. They didn't do computer science. Yeah. They taught themselves. Um, they basically just learned it by themselves. And guess what? They had like a couple of really good mentors who, either were here in Montreal or they knew them online and they could ask them at any time of night, like I'm, I'm hitting a wall here. I I'm not sure what to do next. And the person would give them like a really good sort of really good advice on, you know, what to do next sort of thing. Right. And that's, um, yeah. So that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, it's diabolical and horrible, but it makes perfect sense. Like, I mean, yeah. there are some hilarious sort of parallels. Um, there was a good presentation I used to do for some of our customers in, in credit card land where you would show the sophistication of the bad guys because like the the ideal of this, uh, you know, some autistic kid sat in his bedroom who's doing it single-handedly. <clears throat> and there's a whole ecosystem where the stealing the, the bank details is like the first step in a value chain 
And there are steps in this value chain that aren't even, they might be unethical, but some of them aren't even illegal. That go from like this being stolen <laughs> to the money disappearing off your account. And like some people will do services like you've stolen 10,000 sets of car details. I'll do testing on them in a way that won't get the cars disabled. <laughs> and I'll just come back and tell you if they're valid or not. And like I'll charge you for this. <laughs> and, and you get things like honor among thieves as well so you think how you've got ebay ratings where you know i've bought stuff from this guy before it's as he's described you see like um forum posts and like any online community there are certain people who you know they've been around everyone knows them they respect his work and someone will be offering something and someone will be like well i i, I don't know i don't know i've never dealt with you before and then some respected figure will pop in and be like, no, no, I, I bought 20,000 stolen card details off him last month and they all work. And, and one of them had like, if 95% of these don't work, I'll give you an extra 10% free in excess of whatever more than 5% didn't work. And it's like, we'll just give you more above what you've paid for until they work. Yeah, <laughs> and you think, wow, this is really good customer service. You know, legitimate companies could learn about keep your customers happy from this. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's what, like, you know, uh, who we somebody we both like, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He says, I'm not sure if he says this in one of his books, but I know I've heard him say this uh, in real life. Uh, but he, he says, you know, the difference between the mafia and bankers is that uh, the mafia cares a great deal about public opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's like people are really surprised. There was a really good one with them. Um, it was after an earthquake in Japan, and all the Yakuza, before the uh, officialdom arrived, they led the effort of mobilizing the men to pull the... Oh, uh, my God. The ...and rescue people from this earthquake building. And, like, within their neighborhood, where they held protection on buildings, they were the first responders. <laughs> and it's like... People are surprised by this, and you say, "Well, they have to court some degree of public opinion and popularity." Sure. Yeah, they don't sure. get to deduct it a paycheck. Yeah, <laughs> they don't. <laughs> no, they're no, absolutely. And I mean, there's all these stories that uh, my grandfather told me. My grandfather was from Manchester, and uh, he was, uh, you know, in World War II. He talked. To, he told me all these stories about how, like in. Um, you know, down in, in Italy, right, in Sicily especially, uh, they, like, the mafia went around you know, before the invasion and said, like, just leave your gun on the ground and go home. Like, to all these different soldiers, they're like, uh, <laughs> leave your gun and go home because uh, they're coming in. And, you know, the, you know, these Axis forces, whatever, you know, we never really liked them anyway. Uh, and so when they like got there there were lots of like just guns on the ground and like posts left vacant and so the casualties were really, really low you know really really low because a lot of people had been told by the mafia go home to your family <laughs> go home have uh, have dinner just like don't and so all these people absconded just like left they just deserted their post uh, and it, this is apparently the mafia that did this. So yeah, I mean they're not, they're not all bad. They're mostly bad, but they're not all bad. I mean I remember there was uh, here in 
um, here in, in, in southwestern Montreal in the Irish neighborhood here where I, I told you before there was like, you know, big IRA support and stuff like that in the 19, 1970s and 80s and stuff like that. And, you know, they, they would have it, it's it's crazy to think about this now after like September 11th. But like it was normal to back in the day, it was normal in in Irish neighborhoods in Sydney and Melbourne and Boston and New York and Philly, Baltimore and Montreal. Uh, it was normal to have fundraisers for the IRA. Like, which like now... Some yeah, it was charity. just... People just people just didn't realize what you were actually fucking giving money to. Like, they just didn't realize you're giving money to a fucking terrorist organization. They it's, didn't realize that. This is, this is for sort of solidarity with the Irish people. Yeah, it's yeah, been, we're just... We're just giving... Yeah, if you gave, if you gave, if you went into an Irish pub, they would have like they would go around with, uh, with, with a cup, you know, just to collect money for the blokes, you know, for the for the 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 blokes over there, you know, the the young guys, you know, they're they're fighting the good fight, and it was just, it was normal, it was normalized, and then I think at a certain point people realized like i remember i mean i i mentioned this the other day and people got like really mad at me but like mickey rourke yeah uh after he filmed nine and a half weeks which was a a big kind of box office hit he donated in a very public fashion he donated a million dollars to the ira like as if he was giving it to the Children's Wish fan- yeah, yeah, Foundation. Like, yeah, I want little Jimmy to to shake Mickey Mouse's hand before he fucking dies. <laughs> like you know, like it was like this totally like you know, it was completely like yeah, I'm I'm donating this to breast cancer. Like yeah. it was it was like a big kind of public thing that helped his his reputation. And yeah, and then at a certain point, people realize. Well, you know, well, this is what we're actually doing <laughs> when we when we donate that money. But uh, it was it was very normalized. It's so weird, like how much uh, things have changed since since September 11th, where all these like and I feel like I feel sort of guilty because, you know, my family in the UK, they were, you know, gritting their teeth the whole time, like just like, <laughs> You know, I mean, it's amazing, right? They, people joke, they're like, well, the UK should have bombed, like, Montreal and New York and Boston yeah, because they were supporting terrorists. Because <laughs> they were... And, and that's literally true. Yeah, they I mean, actually I were... They um, actually were supporting the terrorist effort. Even more so, um, I know a lot of uh, London Irish, so um, they, they consider themselves Irish, but they're like a settled community... Within London, I mean, they've kind of got their own culture and their own accent, but they they think of themselves as Irish. And like those guys, you go to their pubs and they they'd be having sort of pro IRA songs. Um, and that's think, insane! And right in London, right in London, <laughs> right in the middle of Rome, and you're like, yeah, you're like right in the middle of Rome, and you're singing like sort of pro barbarian. Anthems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So, so where do you think all of this uh, internet security stuff is going? I mean, you're you're sort of like you're you're kind of figuring out what your next move is right now. You're taking a break. You're uh, raising kids and <laughs> raising a little kid. And so, yeah. wh- where do you think this is all going? So, um, my expectation, and I, I've got no shame in um, in stealing an analogy from someone else, and I'll I'll credit the man. Um, it was John Elliott. He he's he was former head of um, compliance at Visa. Uh, he's a good good guy. I've worked with him uh, in a number of different things before, and he's got a wonderful analogy with um, fire safety. And he said, "No, no person responsible for a public building to make the argument that there is an expectation that a certain percentage, of the resources for a building, go towards fire safety." So. Here in Wales, we've just got new legislation. Any new house built, you have to have sprinkler systems. It adds about 3% to the cost of any new home. And this is on a private residence. And if you don't like it, tough. It's a, it's a requirement. And you can imagine if you're a hotel or a sports stadium, it's not just sprinklers. There's a certain overhead paid for fireproof carpets, for fire doors to be fitted, for door closers. You add it all up, and you could easily add between sort of seven and fifteen percent of the cost of a building um, for one that is fire resistant to the level we have arbitrarily determined is acceptable, um, versus one where you just say sod it, use whatever you want. Um, and because this is deeply ingrained and this is normal, the cost of a building in inverted commas is calculated based on this. And so your frame of reference when you go to buy a building factors this in um, and no one in their right mind would ever dream of going to a builder and saying I'm building a new hotel but I really want to see me so if we just not put any fire suppressant mechanisms in no fire detection we'll just cross our fingers that we don't get caught um, so you're not a libertarian I get I, I take well, it well this is the thing <laughs> I, I really am because a libertarian would say I want to take the, the risk the, the reason, because I'm just like such a fucking badass and like I, I you know I, I, I'm i gonna like you know I'm gonna roll the dice and like I want to like try my luck <laughs> you know, to use use uh, Nassim Taleb's um, terminology the, I, I am a libertarian the reason why I, I don't uh let's call it, say, support the risk-taking in security, is it's it's an immoral risk because I take a risk with your data and if I if it pays off, I profit because I got a cheap building and if it goes wrong, you burn to death. And that's, <laughs> that's the difference. Yeah. So if no, I, I love the analogy. I, know, I love the analogy, yeah, to yeah. the fire thing because we had... We had uh, one of the worst, probably the worst fire in the history of Montreal happened in the 18th century when we, you know, when we back in the the bad old days when we had slavery and there was this, uh, you know, beautiful, young, I've seen paintings of her, incredibly hot, uh, but this beautiful young slave uh, who fell, she was an African slave she fell in love with uh, a white guy and um she she had a her master her mistress was uh lived in right by down by the in old montreal and she had a big mansion she was a 
fucking bitch. Like just like a a horrible bitch. She was a total drunk and she would beat her slave all the time. And she was just a horrible person. And uh anyway, so she she eventually her slave decided I'm going to like I'm going to like get out of here. I'm gonna escape. And so with her with her her man and so on the way out she lit the mansion on fire and um it was uh the middle of the winter and the fire caught and it ended up burning down like it was unbelievable like it 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 just it was just like a perfect storm like just when she lit the place on fire there was a strange kind of very strong wind coming in from the south which is very rare in Montreal it just happened to be this very strong southerly wind which just spread the embers to all the other wood edifices and burned down in the middle of the fucking winter and it gets really like Montreal has a bigger annual spread between annual high and annual low than Moscow but like is, for a isn't it for a big humid, city. Though? So the ambient temperature might be cold, but it's not particularly humid. It's very humid all year round, even okay. in the winter. So it's very cold when it's cold and very hot when it's hot. It's it's not pleasant. It's not for the weak. But but anyway, so about like a third of the structures in Montreal burned down, and there were thousands and tens of thousands of people who were uh, without without like lodging in kind of minus 25 degrees Celsius weather, like really cold weather. So uh, people had to take in total strangers. It was a big deal. But, but in the, after this, they, they went after the people that were, um, you know, she was public, she was eventually found and like publicly hanged and all this stuff. But they passed a law saying you can't, build anything that's not stone. There's no more wood construction. So I love your analogy to like fire safety because they basically said, okay, sure. There were bad guys involved in this story. Yeah, she, she did right um, setting fire to the mansion, but you're always going to... Well, I think she kind of did, did right anyway. <laughs> but but anyway, that that's besides the point. Like they, they said, yeah, sure. There were people who actually set the, the fire, but they're not, you know, it's sort of like... If you're looking at like the way in which the Russians messed with the American, you know, election, okay, sure, maybe there were some people that lit the match, but that's not the problem. The big problem is that your thing is fucking flammable. Like your thing is so flammable. That's what you have to fix. You don't have to fix the bad guys, right? So what Montreal did is they passed a law saying everything has to be stone from now on. Yeah. And so all the new construction was stone, which is exactly what you're saying that like you know, all the new construction has to have sprinkler systems. So your analogy is that the solution to the online world is like everything's going to have to be built in a different way. Yeah, it's it, it sounds crazy to say it, but um, a, a lot of people say security is really difficult. It's really hard. And it, don't get me wrong, it's a, it's a complex engineering domain and it's, it's non-trivial, put it that way. And there are certainly um, new, novel, fundamentally unpredictable threats that come through. But when you look at what percentage of it going bang was due to those versus 
stuff that we did know about that we could have guarded against. It's like saying, um, oh, well, you know, there'll always be fires, so I shouldn't fireproof my carpet because actually I know my cousin and his house burned down because someone went nuts with a flamethrower and ran in and torched the whole house. And no fire protection would guard against it. And you go like, well, yes. But that was weird. Most <laughs> house fires are not started by a lunatic with a flamethrower running in. Yeah, or or like saying Canada and the United States are both first world countries, and yet, you know, like you know, one in three or one in four Americans I know have had ident- identity yeah. theft, and Canadians haven't. So clearly, it's not a technology problem; it's like a will problem. Yeah, I mean this. There is a degree of Americans are more attractive as targets. So the bad guys in this, this kind of this, call it this free market that I was referring to, they um, your card details and my card details may not be worth the same on the black market. So there are a number of parameters they have. So um, if you've got like an Amex Platinum card where you've got a very high limit, that's worth more money. Not only because the limit is higher, but because the spending patterns. You said. You know, regular Joes like you and I go to the local coffee shop. But if you're some multimillionaire and your normal spending pattern is to fly over to some other country, buy a sports car, fly over here, check into a hotel for a month, <laughs> it becomes quite hard to do fraud patterns. And also yeah. they tend to toys out the pram if their cards get blocked. So those cards are inherently worth more. And American cards are are generally worth a bit more because... On average, the spending patterns, um, you know, there tend to be higher value purchases. Um, so there, there are some things that make them a bit more attractive um, as targets. But yeah, in, in terms of your question of could could we make it more secure, the short answer is yes. And usually people aren't willing to. And the, the libertarian world, shouldn't we just allow them and kind of there's a, almost a, an evolutionary battle of the one that strikes the optimum balance between no security, so low cost but gets obliterated, versus really high security but it's in unusable. The free market and evolution will sort out and we'll get a happy medium. The reason that doesn't work is because a lot of the cost is borne by the individual. So if I'm a bank and I skimp on security, my customers in many respects, they endure the cost of it. If I cut corners, I get the profit. So... In Talib's terminology, if you can push the responsibility for the risk-taking back on the entities, then yeah, absolutely. But unfortunately, people tend to get away an awful lot with other people bear the cost. And it's only when it goes so so wrong that it goes bang and puts them out of business. So I mean, it, and, and the people who take the risks as well um, are not, not the kind of people that you would expect necessarily. So, um, I mean, there was one breach I saw where... Um, they were a big, big multinational um, pharmaceutical company. You would definitely have heard of one of the drugs that they're famous for. Um, and they had a card breach. And you looked into like, it. And... Like that that one? <laughs> I couldn't possibly <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> but they, um... Our listeners can't hear anything we just... <laughs> we just did. <laughs> well, anyway, anyway, go on, go on. Yeah, but you know, the, you think those guys, you know, the sums of money involved, they will be doing it properly. They will be securing things, um, and they'd used a little tiny outfit to do all their um, online transactions. 
And even though they were, you know, the public perception would be this ginormous, well-resourced entity, you dug into it, and it was literally, yeah, this did this, and it was like a <laughs> four, four men in someone's bedroom type operation. It was literally like a tiny, tiny little company with a twenty grand a year turnover. Oh my god! And they were providing the web platform that got hacked, and the web platform, in terms of the money that passed through it, was worth. Far, far, far more. Um, and the bad guys sort of basically hopped on there. And uh, did you ever play the the prank when you're a kid, where you've got two phones and you pick up the the handset and you ring two friends and you put the phones together like this, and one friend thinks the other has called them and they get talking. Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah. The bad guys were basically doing this in between the people who were legitimately passing the, the payment. And the customer, and they jammed themselves in the middle. And of course, as these quite legitimate customers were going through and were buying, I nearly said the name of a product, buying medical supplies through the website, um, <laughs> the bad guys were also sat on the server and were taking a copy for themselves as well. Um, wow. And yes, some of the sort of the sophistication of the bad guys as well. Um, you read a lot of the breaches in the paper. And then when you see the detail of what's happened, it, it usually, uh, I'd say more than nine out of ten times, you can say it's usually portrayed in the media as, oh, you know, we've got fantastic security, we're really conscientious. But these guys were like uber hackers and no one could have stopped them and they, they managed to obliterate our wonderful defences. And you look at it and the defences were laughable. Um, but, <laughs> wow. But, but there were a couple of times, um, I, I can count them on one hand, where... You looked at it and you thought the bad guys were good there. I the good guys could have listened to me and done everything I said. They still would have got done. The bad guys really knew what they're doing. Um, and one, one of my favourite, which I, I like to roll out as like an example of um, those really high sophistication that you would struggle to to guard against, was um, uh, a, a big multinational manufacturer of um, chip and pin devices. So when you pay with a credit card, um, I, I'll, I'll give my caveat here, actually. So I explained before we came on the show that sometimes I, um, I pause a bit when I'm, um, I'm saying something and it's because there are details that I'm aware of that didn't end up in the public domain. Uh, and so I have to be careful which ones I say. So uh, if I, I suddenly pause, it's because I'm racking my brains for which bits I can say and which I can't. So uh, I'll, I'll be careful, but I hopefully won't have to invoke the uh, the, the producer edit afterwards to remove anything. But um, so they they're a big manifest. Well, we'll remove we'll remove anything you know objectionable if you want afterwards. Okay, thanks thanks very much. So um, yeah, a, a big manufacturer of um, chip and pin devices. So uh, you know they. Put it put it this way: if you if you've used uh, a credit or debit card in Europe or Northern America, at some point you will have gone through these guys. They they're big. Um, they had um, a situation where they got done, and when when we did the investigation, you could not blame these guys at all. Um, you know, they, they, everything they did was was above board and sound, and the bad guys were just very motivated and very capable. And effectively what they did was um, these devices are made very specifically so that they will never store particularly your PIN number. 
it's only transitory as it passes through it, that's it, it's gone. Um, and they, they designed around this principle. Um, and what the bad guys did is they, they found a way of modifying these um, so that they would actually store not only the card details that went through them, but your, your PIN number. And if you've got chip and PIN, if you've got the card details and, and the PIN number, that's like the holy grail, it's all better off. Um, and what they did was they found a way of making this modification, but they recognized that it was quite high risk to go and break into lots of properties and install these. So they managed to get two guys into the factory where they manufactured these devices. Um, and the company concerned even had separation of duties. So this is a principle in a bank where, say, if you can authorize payments, you're not allowed to be in the department that changes bank account numbers. So the principle is, if I want to change your bank account details and make a payment, I need two people involved. So they split these duties out to separate human individuals. Wow. These bad guys worked out that they wouldn't be able to both install tampered firmware on these devices and control where they shipped out to and have a record of where they've gone. So they got two people, applied for jobs, worked legitimately in the factory, um, stole a copy of the software, took it away. They modified it off-site. They brought it back in. They slotted it back in to the legitimate production line in the factory where they made these devices. The devices went out the door, and the other guy, the second person, had copies of the manifest of where they've gone and the serial numbers. Um, and we only found all this out after the case, after the fact. Um, the the way the device is designed is that if you steal one of the devices, it's a pain in the ass and it's like a four hundred pound device. But the, they shouldn't have any sensitive data in. That's what they're designed for. So there was a spate of people broke into, say, like a McDonald's or a petrol station in the middle of the night and ripped out the chicken pin device. And it, it happens occasionally, and you kind of say, oh, it's some junkie who thinks there's some value in it, and we've designed it so that there's not, so don't worry about it. Um, but what had happened was these guys had gotten a list of where these devices had gone from the factory, and they'd left them for three months. So everyone who had legitimately paid for petrol, paid for McDonald's through that chicken pin device, this alternate firmware they'd loaded had been squirreling away internally copies of that data, including the PIN. And so this when these wild. devices were ripped out, each one of them had all the payments that had gone through since they'd been installed. Um, and then what the bad guys did, and this is where you know organized crime were involved, um, the bad guys created fake credit cards, which you would, you would imagine as a layperson, I guess, um, this must be really expensive hardware that only banks would have access to and must be really hard to do. You'll get one for under $200 on eBay. They're like, they're USB devices. <laughs> you plug them into your PC and the cards look just like a, I haven't got my wallet down, they look just like a, a normal chip and pin card with that chip in the middle, but it's like, it's all white. And it's for, um, say, software developers quite legitimately need the ability to test cards and test payments. Um, so they're, they're not hard to get hold of, but as far as whatever you put them into sees them, they're just the card. So if you've stolen the card numbers and you have the PIN number, you can create your own own cards. And what these guys oh did my God. throughout multiple countries um, at the exact same time, they had guys with like big sports holdalls 
and a couple hundred uh, cards of these fake cards, just plain white plastic with the chip on, with the pin number written on it, and these mules who were completely didn't have any idea how it had been stolen. The instruction they had been given was you go to the cash point, um, you stick it in, you key in that number, you take out whatever your local market limits, so $350 a day is the maximum you take for cash. You take $350 out, you throw that in your bag, you take the card out, you throw it on the floor, you take the next card you did, you continue until you run out of cards or the cash machine is empty or you hear sirens. Um, and some machines get emptied. And Jesus know. Christ. If you've got 20,000 grand of cash sat in a large ATM and you just empty the lot into a holdall. And of course, they're doing this all over at the same time. Um, and of course, they just find tons of these cards just discarded around the bottom of the cash machine that's been cleared out or two thirds of the money is gone. Um, and they managed to catch a couple of the guys. And of course, you know, you can chuck these guys in prison. But they were just like local no-hopers who had no conception of the broader fraud. The deal they'd been given was you do this. If you steal the money, we kill you. You bring it back to base at this preordained time and we let you keep 5% or whatever it was. And if you've stolen any, we'll know. Um, and of course, so talking about this value chain, these people at the end who are actually going up to the cash machine, they have, they have no conception. They haven't done the hack that has stolen these things. They've no Unbelievable. Idea. Yeah, this they're like factory workers of this one step in the process. Wow. And you look Eric, at those guys and you're Eric, like, yeah. I'm gonna I, hold on, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a piss. I'm gonna pass you to Eric for one second. I, I'm gonna Eric. take a quick leak as well, John. Uh, John, this is like in uh, I don't know if you know Doug Stanhope, the American comedian. I'm back, I'm back. <laughs> that was um completely horrifying. Your last like little like your your anecdote that was completely horrifying. Uh, yes, I am familiar with Doug Stanhope. <laughs> I've just been saying his podcasts. Uh, they have a thing halftime where they go for cocktails. <laughs> like they'll, they'll suddenly just suddenly they'll just cut and someone will shout cocktails. That's hilarious. <laughs> No, that's uh, you know it's it's funny because uh, we just finished my wife and I we just finished reading um, this new book about um, the troubles in Northern Ireland and like one of the things that was uh, striking to us about that you know and I've I've encountered this in many many different contexts is that the people who end up doing you know placing the bomb or taking the money out of the cash machine or, you know, they tend to be people who are really low down on the food chain and they really don't understand what they're doing. Like it's, uh, it's, um, just this, it's sad, you know, it's like they're being used. They really don't realize like what's actually happening. Right. It's, uh, but, but one thing I want to ask you, we, we've, we've talked about this before, you know, off, off air, but um, uh, what do you think Nassim Nicholas Taleb's sort of contribution to all of this this stuff is? I mean, he's uh, he's sort of a very polarizing figure, but uh, I, I'm always amazed that a lot of like people who do internet security, people who do like 
they they mentioned you know I one of my friends who I I'm not going to mention but he does internet security for a, a very a very major Canadian bank and uh, and he also was like oh yeah anti fragility is like a central notion that I use you know right so um, why do you think it is that Taleb ends up being uh, an important figure for a lot of these people, including you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think his model works beautifully in most things. Um, so people saying, you know, oh, banks are too big, we need to bail them out. And the correct answer Too big is, to fail, yeah. Well, don't, don't have them in such a way that you ever find yourself in that situation. It's kind of, we only have to do this thing, which is a bad idea, because we, we have a prerequisite step that we also shouldn't have been doing, and if we didn't do this, we would never have found ourselves in that position. Um, and I think through most of human history and most of trade and commerce, you would have that kind of proximity to it um, and a degree of apportioning blame. So using my analogy of, um, you know, nine out of ten times you look into breach companies which bent over with their trousers down and asking for Yep, um, yep. If you have your bank details stolen from a bank, most people say, oh, well, you know, the bank was probably taking, it's not their fault, they're hackers. And it's kind of, well, it, it's a spectrum. So if you take your grandmother's ring, which is your most prized material possession to some jeweler to be adjusted, because uh, you want to use it to propose to some girl. If the, the jeweler gets broken into, and it's in some Fort Knox uh, safe that your your mate the safe cracker can't get into. Um, you said you're a safe cracker too. You said not, not so safe. Funny. So I just pick locks for hobby. Not not oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm interested sorry. in them academically yeah. because of work, and it's become yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Ocean's <laughs> Eleven. You're the eleventh. I know it. <laughs> you think if, if the bad guys have circumvented a genuinely uh, really strong safe and have gotten in and they've they've held the staff at gunpoint and the staff have given it up, you're kind of like, well, it's really sad it got stolen, but he's the bad guy and the jeweler did everything reasonable. Um, yeah. And the problem is, is that we can intuit what is secure and reasonable when we're talking about stealing a wedding ring from a, a safe in a jeweler's. But often what happens is that the... What's actually gone on is that they've left your wedding ring behind a single pane of glass facing the street front with a spotlight on it at midnight in a bad bit of town. <laughs> and your, your wedding ring's been stolen and they go, oh, well, I'm not the bad guy. Don't blame me. You know, blame the thief who smashed the window. And you say, well, yeah, I do. He's a bad guy as well. But there are reasonable steps in taken. And I think that's one of the yardsticks that needs to be introduced is what's a reasonable degree of appropriate um, protection that you must apply. Um, and using Taleb's um, sort of skin in the game analogy, I would suggest that you standardize what is an acceptable level. And you basically say, if you fall below this threshold and you get hacked, you're wholly culpable. We'll also go after the bad guy when we catch him. But you bear the risk as though you perpetrated the crime because you were so negligent in your duty to protect these people or this information. And obviously this scales. It depends on the value of what you've got. So if you've got someone's PayPal account with 50 grand sitting in it, the expected degree of protection is higher than if I've got two or three pounds worth of currency on a gift card. So it's yeah. not like a one size fits all. 
Um, and I think that should be the model of regulation is to push um, what is the accepted minimum for that particular risk class or that value of asset. Um, and that's something we don't see at the moment. I mean, I, I have quite a degree of sympathy with certain people who get done over where their core business is very far removed from this. When a bank gets hit, you're, like, you're a bank, you should, better, you should invest in this. But, um, but when in the spectrum we've got big uh, multinational pin manufacturers and international banks, at the other end of the spectrum, I saw um, a fancy dress company that got done over and they're like they've got one real world office they've got 20 employees and they just sold a lot of fancy dress by mail order and you think yeah this is not this is not the forefront of anyone there working there's mind and you know in a gardening company when you talk to the guys there and it's like four people in their it team if your it team is four people simply will not get a person who can focus enough on security it's like saying i've got a military unit of four guys and go today i need a helicopter pilot and you go we haven't got one well i remember i remember like when um uh, what's her name the the actress who plays uh the main character in the hunger games oh i know what's who you name? mean i can't yeah i can picture her face i can't remember her name yet but i remember somebody hacked into her personal like oh. computer and they they like put these like nude photos that she had taken of herself and shared with like a friend. Yeah. I, I think somebody she was like dating at the time and, um, and I put this on the internet and like, I remember hearing about this and I was, I was just so like fucking disgusted. Like I was so grossed out. I thought like, this is such bullshit. Like, this is such bullshit. Like, you know, and I, I immediately thought, like, this could be my, you know, one of my little sisters, yeah. could be one of my students. And so, like, I, I, you know, to this day, I I have never gone on the internet and looked at any of those pictures. And, but I thought that her response to it was was so like fucking boss like she basically she went on the she was like this was an invasion of my privacy and if you go and look at those pictures those naked pictures of me you are participating in yeah. that invasion of you're privacy guy as well you yeah you're you're participating in this and like um so you know we had already my wife and i and like a lot of people we know had already sort of come to the same conclusion as soon as we heard about it, like, this could happen to us. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is, you know, Eric could be, like, looking at my... But, like... <laughs> <laughs> but, like, we... Yeah, yeah, we'll send you naked pictures of Eric and me and my, you know... But, but uh, we immediately came to the same conclusion before she even said this. We were like, this is something that any individual citizen... You know, unless they're like, you know, Carrie Charlton, like who is an Internet security person, you can't be expected to like be prepared for this. No, so I mean, there has to be there has to be a community out there that says this is fucked up. I'm not going to look at that because that's not my business. Like and what's her name? Oh, Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, that's right, yeah. the uh, 
producer just enlightened me. Jennifer um, Lawrence, the the actress who plays the, yeah, the main I character in the Hunger like... Games. Anyway, she she had a bunch of naked pictures of her. Um, you know, I don't know how many of them there are, but apparently, like a bunch of naked pictures of her were were put on the internet, and somebody had like hacked into her personal computer and her phone. Yeah, it's, it's messed up. It, it's it's bad, and you you made an interesting point that you know there's the bad guy who steals it, but then there let's call them the sort of participants after the fact, um, and it's. It's interesting because the only sort of real analogy we have to that is where um, I, well, I can I only once nothing to do. So um, there was a a thing a few years ago, probably about ten fifteen years back now, where there were a couple on a motorbike going down um, the M25, which is the the main London ring road around around London, um, and the woman who was sat on the back's backpack suddenly burst open, and the air was just filled with notes. Money like a like a like a film, you know. The bad guys have dropped the the bank heist thing full of notes, um, and people sort of pulled over, and you know, some people were grabbing fistfuls of money out of the air and stuffing it in their bag, and then jumping in their car right away. But most people were grabbing fistfuls of money and pulling out the dishes, and then going back to this woman and giving it back to her. And you think, well, in that scenario, you're a thief if you're in the former group. And you're a responsible citizen if you're in second, and we'd probably be able to try the the people who, who pocketed it. We'd probably be able to try them for theft because the fact that she dropped it and you saw it come out of her bag, it's like you drop your wallet on the floor and the guy next to you picks it up and you go, "Excuse me, can I have my wallet back?" And they say, "No." You're like, "Well, it's not much different to you've stuck your hand in my pocket." Um, so we have that with kind of possession, but with um, to give a, a rather dark example, but um, I, I did nearly end up working uh, prosecuting paedophiles, so um, child sex abuse. Oh my god, um, wow, really? Yeah, and wow, that's that's an area where when you think that's dark, it, um, you you could, and this this always upsets people, you could make the argument that you could say, Well, well, I didn't abuse any kids, I just looked at the pictures again. You say, Well, no, as a society, we say. Not allowed. You're not allowed to look at the pictures. And in your example with Jennifer Lawrence, there's an argument to be made that could say, well, let's call it consumption of the proceedings of crime, where if if we know in its public knowledge this has been taken without consent, which is what we do in child sex abuse images, then you're also guilty of an offence by consuming these things. So that there could be some precedent there that we say, well. Once it becomes public knowledge that these are Jennifer Lawrence's images and you take it, they've been stolen and that's sad, you've now propagated them. You, you could potentially argue that the people who've consumed those are, are guilty in the same way. For me, I, I thought of it not as a, a legal thing. I thought of it as an ethical thing. It's like, it's like uh, you know, looking at your little sister in the shower. It's just like, it's like fucking wrong. Don't like, you know... Yeah, don't like, don't fucking do it. Like, don't look, don't look at that because, you know, like I, I like those. I read those novels and I, I like the the movies and like, she's she's a good actress and like, those those pictures were not, like, put out there by her consent. Like you can make and you just yeah. don't you just don't look at them because it's, 
it's not it's not decent yeah, if, if someone poses for Playboy when they're young and starting out and it comes out 10 years later, it's kind of, well, you, you put them in Playboy, so they're out there. It's kind of, but yeah, if, if they've been stolen, it's... Kerry's kind of, saying this because he posed for Playgirl and we've all <laughs> seen his his nudes and we've all seen his exceptionally long member, but yeah. T- talking of Playboy and Playgirl, <laughs> there's, a, there's a fun uh, analogy. My last company, we used to have a, a check. We had a, a filter built into the uh, the firewalls to stop people going to what were flagrantly porn sites. Um, and one of my guys said as a task, he would try and go to Playboy just to see, because uh, it should have returned a... This is blocked under category pornography, like you probably have at the university. He was just checking that this worked. Um, and it was really interesting because we, we got into this philosophical debate more, more recently about um, Playboy had kind of decided that it was going to kind of water things down. And so it became contentious whether it crossed the bar of what you could consider pornography anymore. And so it's like, should we choose a different site in in order to be like the threshold that's tripped? Because maybe there won't be anything in it. Because like a common thing you do with those algorithms is you detect proportions of flash tone is one of the things. And it's like, well, if this is no longer that bad in the scheme of things, yeah. Well, it's funny because like actually like one of uh, one of our one of our mutual friends from the Taleb circle. When I when I posted that thing about uh, with the Michelle Wolf joke about like nipples on Instagram, uh, he he said to me he goes, uh, Facebook is like Orwellian now. He goes, I predict within one hour your post is like removed, and um, and it was very funny because like I I asked one of my my nerdy friends here in Montreal and he's like. No, it's it's not going to be removed uh, at all because they have algorithms that are sort of calculating certain things and like nothing about your post contradicts those algorithms. <laughs> and it turns out he was totally right. Like it it hasn't been taken down. It's been like two days now. It hasn't been taken down. So, but it shows like somebody who's from the free the nipple campaign who's wearing, like, Band-Aids on her nipples, and she's, you know, naked from the the top with... And there's all these people talking about this, but, like, it hasn't been taken down. So clearly the algorithms are are working, so... I mean, there's a famous one, um, it's on Facebook, where they they blocked it, and I appreciate the, uh, the listeners can't hear, but there's a lady in a bath, and she's posed with her hands behind her head and her elbows forwards, and she's rubbed the end of her elbows, and there are bubbles from the bath. And effectively, it screens off part of her arm. And you, you can see <laughs> when she knows, you can see how the algorithm would mistake her elbows sticking out, particularly this sort of red on the end, as the yeah. real breasts. And this picture was blocked and taken down. And it was sort of, you know, the algorithm was just an absurdity away. And she's like, what? <laughs> Yeah, you couldn't see any flash towards their head and their elbows. Literally, all that was in shot. Oh my god! That's hilarious. All right. Well, we are almost out of town. 
at at a time. But uh, so, what are you what are you doing in the future? What is your next plan? So, uh, I, I, I've told new companies to you know there's there's no point anymore. Um, I'm in discussion with two companies. I've got an offer from one um, that will be very varied, doing information security work all over predominantly the UK, but probably a little bit overseas. But um, I, I took my last job to avoid overseas travel because I was going to because you want to be married and have yeah, a kid. Yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah. For the podcast, I, I don't like long distance yeah. either. Um, Neither do I at all. I'm terrible at it. Yeah. So th- that was that was one which looks like it'd be really interesting and varied. Um, and the other one is uh, they're a big supplier of um, HR records and payroll information in the UK. Whoa. Woo. So payroll is one of those things, a bit like credit card details, where um, <laughs> it's a really appealing target. And the company also gets that if one month no one gets paid and the bad guys have just stolen all our customers payroll for the month we're going to be out of business they take it seriously um so those are i've got offers from one the other one i've got my final interview in the next two weeks but i'll i'll be going with one of those two unless i get hit by lightning or something and (laughs) if either of those two companies are listening right now and their algorithms that troll social media are good enough and you find this podcast if you contact me before i've accepted with either i'll accept with you because if you're that on top of it, my job will be easy. <laughs> that is the best way to end. <laughs> All right, Kerry. Thank you. Pleasure, Wonderful girl. to talk to you. All right. Take care. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> Bye.